Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. One fine morning, I woke up early, Bella Chow. Bella Ciao, Bella Ciao One fine morning I woke up early To find the fascists at my door Oh Partigiano Please take me with you Bella Ciao Bella Ciao, goodbye, beautiful. Oh, Partigiano, please take me with you. Hello. Hello, could I please speak with Mark Ribot? This is he. Hello, this is Paul Holdengraber calling you from the quarantine tapes. I'm so delighted you took the time to take my call. Thank you very, very much. Tell me, Mark, where, where do I find you at the present moment? And how have you been living these past seven delirious months? You, you find me in Brooklyn, New York. Although I haven't been here the entire time. I did my... Um, my partner lives in Trieste, Italy. Oh my goodness! My, so one of my I, favorite cities in the world. It is a wonderful city, and and so through a very complicated um, method, we were able to meet in Croatia, and then I kind of, sort of snuck into Italy. <laughs> so we were, um, anyways. It was a little bit like some kind of wartime spy novel or something. But uh, but I made it there and back and and um, well, I'm going to attempt to go back, uh, which I don't know if I'll be able to do. And Trieste, I'm I'm sorry to to pause there. I I love it so much. Um, you know the the it's haunted with so many so many memories I don't have, but of Rilke <laughs> and and of Zvevo and of Joyce and and also one of the most magnificent books I've ever read in my life. Really, uh, is on the city of Trieste, and I wonder if you know it. It's a book by Jan Morris called Yes. I do a wonderful do. book. Jan, uh, yes. Jan is so magnificent. I've had occasion to speak with her on several occasions, and really, oh yes, really, oh yes, she is. Oh she well, is divine. I mean, and and she is divine in every sense. <laughs> really, and and I mean, you know, and the book is wonderful. It really, really is. And I'm sorry. I I wish I could spend the whole time just talking with you uh, uh, about Trieste, but I think we have other matters to discuss, perhaps. 
Uh, well, for, let's in, move on to the other matters. Yes, but. and of course, I'd love to know we're in Brooklyn because that's where I I used to live uh, in in Fort, I am, in Fort Greene. But whereabouts are you? Well, I I am now in in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. Right. It, I, it's a place that I moved because it was down the street. It's a, a long and personal story, but I moved here. Um, uh, because it was down the street from my daughter's elementary school years ago. My goodness, probably the, the same. The school is still there, and, prob- and so prob- am I. Probably the same elementary school my children went to. But anyway, uh, leaving that leaving that aside, you were recently involved in a in a musician's march, which was called the March for Survival. Can you can you give us a sense actually of what went on there? Well, um, yes, I can. I can give you um, what went on. First of all, we scheduled this march because of there were two there were two um, sets of circumstances which are often not discussed together. Uh, but when you discuss them together, you can see that there's a kind of been an emergency situation, a kind of perfect storm of unfortunate circumstances that have put. Um, many of my colleagues in a what will increasingly become a desperate situation. The first is obviously, well, obviously there's COVID-19, the medical phenomena, but it's the, our current difficulties have to do with the legislate, some legislative decisions around COVID-19. Uh, first of all, the first and most important legislative decision has been that Um, uh, at the end of July, um, the FPUC $600 weekly benefits on which people were surviving ended. And Congress was supposed to reconsider that. There's a long history. The, uh, the Democrats made some reasonable proposals. The Republican Senate refused them. Anyways, without going into the whole history, we are now approaching the elections. And not only have those not been restored, But the PUA benefits that are what 1099 workers used have survived on since then um, are going to end at the end of of, uh, December. And basically, regardless of which party wins on on Tuesday, we're without this means we're out without benefits till February or March at the earliest. Now, a lot of people look around and they say, well, there's musicians playing in the park and on the street corner. People see more musicians than ever. Well, that's true, but what that what those lovely free performances in the park are also called is begging. <laughs> uh, hello? I hear you well. Uh, oh, okay. And so that brings me to the second set of unfortunate political uh, decisions, which affect us here in New York. So I won't, I know this is a national broadcast, so I won't dwell on them for too long. Um, first of all, we, I personally, and MWA, Music Workers Alliance, which is the group that I am with that is, that organized this protest, we, um, are strongly, we strongly believe in safety first for ourselves, for our audiences, for the public. And we strongly recognize and support the right and the duty of government to keep the public safe. And that include, that's definitely going to include the shutdown of many venues and if things get very bad of all venues but in new york you know people often say the the devil is in the details 
the angel, the potential angel, is also in the detail. Right, right. Between, and between angel and devil. Between angel and devil, the details are important. And when we saw in New York, you know, as, as you know, New York had a terrible time at the beginning of the, of the, you know, it was one of the first hardest hit places in the U.S. because we're a city that's, you know, very open to, to travel and anyways, for a number of reasons. But then after that, the city took, did what it had to do. The state and the city did what it had to do largely. And by the time summer came around, the, the infection rates were down. And the state and city worked well with restaurants. They came up with a creative plan. It involved dining on the streets, um, in the sidewalk. They used, the city was, is broke, but it used the resources it did have. It owns the street. It owns the sidewalk to work with restaurants for a reopening. Then there were, they gave regulations for gyms to reopen. Obviously, airlines have been, you know, functioning uh, since the beginning. They installed uh, certain kind of filters in their uh, air filtration systems. So government can work with businesses for safe reopenings under some circumstances. But unfortunately, in New York, our governor and our mayor did not, you know, issued blanket shutdowns. So we were, it's not that music was shut down, it's that our economy was shut down because we are not, uh, the venues are not allowed, well, there's a, a city shutdown of all, all public space. There's no permitting for music events in public space. And there's a state shutdown that says that you can't sell tickets or advertise. So between those two, there's, like I say, uh, music events are happening all the time, but they're not regulated and they're basically tip jar. So, or, or you're allowed to have music as long as it's ancillary to the dining experience. Anyways, so it was a big mess in New York and we were, we wanted to urge the governor and the state. We were not saying, hey man, let us do gigs. We don't care what happens. But we were saying, sit down with us and let's come up with a, a safe reopening plan. Let's flexible seating theaters that are smaller and have enough entrances and are willing to put in HVAC systems with the right kind of filters and are willing to pay enough money to change the air six times uh, an hour, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, without boring people to death. No, there are the, things that the, the, can be done under certain circumstances. And we were protesting to say in, in, in basically in a short way, no gigs plus no money plus no, you know, no gigs, shutting down gigs plus shutting off the benefits, the federal benefits means people can't live. It's a, it's a, it's a recipe for extinction. Yes. In, in short. And and uh, were you able to sit down with the governor? Were you able to sit down with the officials? Are you hopeful that you will actually... Well, we only did the protest, we only did the protest on Monday, so right. we have to give them... I, a, a to be honest with you, I think it's going to take, I think it's going to take time. I think it's going to, I think we're going to have to be on the street. Uh, well, we're going to have to do some form of action. Um, it, this is going to take repeated action. And I don't think it's just musicians, by the way, or even just performers. I think that as this thing goes on, I think um, a lot of, I mean, a lot of different types of workers are going to have to say what we've been saying, that if we can't work, we need various, we need relief. 
Right, and right, I think, right, right. And you know, you know, you you said you, you said it isn't just music. Of course not. And you know, in France, for instance, bookstores have argued that they should be seen as essential services, services of public utility. And isn't there a parallel right there between what they are seeing as important and what the music world sees as essential? Yes. Well. It's a trick, you know, it's a, it, I, I agree with that, but it's a tricky, we have to be careful in how we speak about it because Always. I don't disagree, I don't disagree with, if the government has to, in extreme circumstances, designate some services as, ex as essential and shut down the rest, um, well, that's what it has to do. But what the problem that I have is that that creates I mean, I, I see that as reasonable. It has to be done in an emergency. The problem is that, is that it's a, a bit of a slippery slope because the shadow of the essential service is the inessential service, of course. And, okay, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. But it seems to, there seems to be some slippage from the essential service to the inessential service to the expendable industry And from there to the expendable human being, <laughs> and no human being is expendable, not one. You know, when, when Mr. Trump was on TV the other night, and he said, well, you know, it's only 1% who die. Um, you know, he was talking about the United States, where 1% means three and a half million people will die. So we can't be talking about expendable people. There may be ex essential services, and I will let leave that to the state planners to determine which they are. Right. But the rest of us are not expendable people. That I know. At, at this march, did you did you sing any protest songs? I know you're you're interested in in protest music, and you've said that in the civil rights movement, the act of singing together helped bring people together and give people courage and it let people know that they're in fact not alone. Yes, and I think that's very important. But, you know, as several people have talked, spoken, as, as several people have made me aware and more than one of them has been a professional critic, my own voice may not be the best vessel for bringing that sense of encouragement. So I did not sing protest tunes, but at this march, we did have a wonderful band, including various wind instruments, all of whom, by the way, had bell covers, and we all were masked, and we all did our very best to keep distance, and it was all outdoors. So in our protest, we, we, we said what we had to say, but we said it safely. So what I did was I shouted, we, we came up with slogans. And I shouted them into a, a megaphone. I think I did it as musically as possible. And, and, um, and this wonderful band, which included not one, but two sousaphones, um, many percussionists, like I said, all kinds of horn players. And, and yes, and the drummer Kenny Wallison was there on his uh, bicycle, which was equipped with, he could somehow ride a bicycle and play drums at the same time. Um, yeah, there were many people in this band, and, and so between the chants and the band, it was a very musical event. 
On your on your album Songs of Resistance 1942 to 2018 I was taken by your version of Bella Ciao and the way in which you bring forth its meaning through the lyrics and of course Tom Waits singing was just extraordinary um, and and the, those first lyrics you. one fine morning I woke up early Bella Ciao Bella woke Ciao woke up early one fine mo morning woke, yeah yes um, one fine morning, I woke up early, find the fascists at my door. And I'm, I'm wondering what those, those lyrics bring to mind now. Well, you know what they bring to mind is that we read about these things in history. Um, it, they, they bring to mind that my brother and I are sitting in my apartment now looking for um, uh, a place to connect in Pennsylvania, which is, a, which is one of the key swing states. Um, we're looking for a place to connect in Pennsylvania to go and do poll watching and, and help people get to the polls um, and to protect the elections, to protect the democratic process. And it seems absurd. I mean, I'm sitting in my comfortable apartment um, and trying, thinking of driving two and a half hours to go someplace to meet with people that I've never met to do something. Um, but when we read about these historic people, the, about the resistance um, in Italy or in France, it was no easier for them than it is for us now. It was just as it must have, they, like us, woke up one morning and said, oh my God, I have to do something. So I think that that line, um, that's what it meant for me then when at the time and, and now, is that this is, the, this is a portrait It's a political song, but it's also a portrait of a moment in someone's life when they walk out the door and they have to say goodbye to, um, to their family. And Tom Waits does such a, a tremendous job, and the two of you together, it's really, it's really remarkable, Mark, I, I, I have to tell you. I'd like you to, to react to something Matt Dryhurst said about streaming platforms. He says, my assumption is that whichever streaming platform wins, as all roads lead to monopoly in this economy, the artists that benefit from that streaming platform will be those artists that most dutifully satisfy the requirements of that streaming platform, which I think is a very different aspiration than satisfying the requirements of feeding healthy international and local music scenes. Mm, I think that that's a, I think that's a wise statement, um, you know, uh, and it brings to mind Marshall McLuhan's famous, the medium is the message, you know, uh, the media is the message. There, there is no neutral media. They, uh, um, they change They alter, they have their own demands, built-in demands. Um, and sometimes, by the way, they have overt censorship. Um, uh, I, I became aware today that Zoom has blocked academic conferences, um, who, which were intended to, I mean, were intended to discuss uh, Palestinian issues. These, this was not, these were not political meetings. They were academic conferences examining, examining, examining the political situation, perhaps. But, I mean, they were scholars, try, international scholars trying to meet. And they were prevented from meeting by Zoom because of pressure from non-academic groups. 
pressure didn't come from within the university system, came from outside pressure groups. And then when other scholars tried to organize Zoom meetings to discuss what it means to be censoring this speech, those conferences were blocked by Zoom. So what does it mean to have complete private ownership of this type of communication at a time when people can't travel? Right. It's, it's a frightening right. Frightening question, really. And but to get back to what you to the the statement that you that you just read, I think at the same time I don't want to be. Even though my natural tendency is very much to be a luddite, and you know what I say is, what's so bad about the luddites? They were they're pretty wonderful. Um, but I I want to resist that tendency a little bit and say, okay, you know, new technologies have have. Um, come with their limitations, their, uh, you know, their limitations and their possibilities. But the, the, the problem with streaming, I don't think is streaming itself. And even for all the, um, I know there's a lot of anger at Spotify and much of it is justified. And I think that there are many ways in which they could improve. But the worst thing about the streaming services isn't the streaming services themselves. It's the fact that they are in competition with a huge black market in which material, any, basically anyone who can type my name or any other artist's name into a search engine can get our material for free. Right. And as long, so the main, as long as that's the case, the streaming services are, are going to pay terribly because nobody can compete with zero. And right now, um, 48%, I believe, of the world's music is accessed for free on YouTube. And 38% of the world's listeners um, access at least some of their music through, in, through infringement or infringing copies of music. So, I mean, there's always, there's always been pirated music. There's always been bootlegs. But, you know, it's, you know, it's, um, you know, if if it's 2% of the market, if it's three, four, 5% of the market, that's one thing. But, you know, it's like, I mean, there's always going to be people selling drugs, but this is like having a crack dealer have a stand at Walmart. You know, it's like, it's, you can't have a normal market in the face of this huge black market. So it's my belief that, that if the, if the, something needs to be done to, uh, to bring, to stop mass online infringement, um, and, and that a lot of the problem with Spotify would go away if that was done. Um, why? Because if Spotify continued to pay 0.004 cents a stream um, and the market improved, then all the labels and all the musicians would just sign with whoever, would just license to whoever paid better. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the way it works with potatoes yeah. anyways. Mark, you, you, <laughs> Mark you, you've played with some incredible people. I was mentioning Tom Waits before, but I'd like to ask you about two of them. Chuck Berry and McCoy Tyner. Can you give us a sense of what you actually learned from them? <laughs> wow. I'm so glad you asked about those two. Uh, first of all, it was the hugest honor for me to play with both of those gentlemen. And um, yeah, with Chuck Berry, it was quite a bit earlier in the 80s. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, when I was in the band, the Uptown Horns, and yeah. we 
we were kind of the backup band of choice for visiting uh, like 50s rock or, or R&B artists with a, a special uh, a specialty in Stax Volt sound, which I still love. But anyways, yeah, so Chuck Berry, we, we started to back up Chuck Berry when we, he would appear at the Ritz. And um, it was, you know, first of all, I think anybody who calls themselves an electric guitarist needs to know Chuck Berry's solos. I don't mean just this standard thing that people do that they think is how Chuck Berry comps. In fact, he comp he plays chords differently on every tune. There are compositions that he's made. You know, he's he's crafted them beautifully. So, yeah, if you call yourself an electric guitarist, you should know Chuck Berry's solos. Um, you should study them. Um, and getting to work uh, with Chuck Berry, I got to you know, well, I, I as preparation, we studied. I studied his guitar, um, his guitar solos, and we wrote out the horn lines and and did the charts. And working with him was was always kept us on our toes because he could call those songs in any key. Wow! So <laughs> wow. so you had to actually know them. Wow! He could call them in any key, and um, and you had to really really follow him. Um, and I I felt I had to walk a thin line because I didn't want to just you know I I didn't want to steal his stuff you know like by if I if I you know did quotes if I quoted too much you know what I mean it was like. Um, I didn't want to make it seem like, oh, look, I'm proving that um, I've I've learned your solo. I mean, it's his solo, you know. But at the same time, I didn't want to. I mean, there's some guitarists um, who get on stage with Chuck Berry and say, "Yeah, I'm going to show I can pay faster than Chuck Berry." You know, <laughs> sure, I'm, I'm sure. in a fusion band. I'll show him. And so, no, 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 you're not going to show Chuck Berry. Um, because first of all, Chuck Berry kicked everybody's ass. He has this, com- he had this complete rhythmic authority, um, this complete rhythmic authority that, um, and this power that was, was, was awesome to, to witness from the stage. I mean, when he would point his guitar in a particular direction and play a note, you could see the audience ripple as if he'd sent out a force ray. And his use of his economy in his solos, his use of space, his his way of making um, uh, fewer notes than, let's say, a bebop guitarist would have used was, was you know, I've learned, I've studied and tried to learn from my whole life. Um, so, so, yeah, it was wonderful to be on stage. Just the... Also, I have to say something about about rock and roll. You know, there's I played with a lot of different people, but the there are real when I played with real rockers, people who really feel it. You know, um, being on with with Chuck Berry or Iggy Pop or Patti Smith to be on stage with a real rocker, it's like being on stage with a you know with an uncaged tiger the energy is oh, like wonderful, really wonderful is really palpable you know when when chuck chuck berry did the did one of his solos and and projected something into the audience or when iggy pop smashed the microphone <laughs> or when patty smith spits on stage like you know you're in the presence of something very powerful and 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 how would you describe your moments with McCoy Tyner okay well first of all McCoy I mean um, I have I have um, 
not really, even though I've played at the Village Vanguard, I, I have been very hesitant to describe myself as a jazz musician. Um, what I describe myself as is somebody who has a huge affection for, for, um, for some parts of the huge amount of work that, that's called jazz. And one of those parts is John Coltrane's, uh, John Coltrane's music, um, which, by the way, Patti Smith also loved. And many people don't know this, but she's a pretty, you know, she, she's not, I wouldn't say, call her a huge vers- virtuoso, but she's a pretty good free jazz clarinetist. <laughs> uh, but to get know. back didn't to McCoy. Know. Didn't know. Well, well, now you know. Um, but to get back to McCoy. Um, so he had, McCoy had played on some of my favorite, you know, on Ascension, he played on some of my favorite recordings. Um, he played on Sunship, you know? Um, so he played on some of my favorite recordings of all time. Um, when I first heard Sunship, it was like a long time ago. Um, and I lived in Maine at the time and it came on like public radio and I was driving back home in my pickup truck in the middle of a, a, a bad snowstorm. And I was so amazed. I took a wrong turn and wound up going into a snow drift <laughs> and I had to get towed out. But, <laughs> you'll, uh, you'll always but, remember. But I, I was so, yeah, I was, I was really absorbed, completely <laughs> absorbed. Um, yeah, so so to meet McCoy, the real McCoy, after after so many years of listening and and worshiping, um, was intimidating. <laughs> and uh, um, you know, like, and I talked to McCoy on the phone. Oh well, I first met him at the recording session, and yeah, I uh, you know um, you know, which was also um, a lot of great people were on on the recording session um and and I, there I was with my bright gold um weird guitar that I had borrowed from Tom Waits <laughs> uh, a strat stratotone guitar um and people were looking at me a little bit strangely um uh and anyways but McCoy you know McCoy was um, a really was really gentle and and nice. You know, uh, he was very human at the sessions. And while other people went out um, for lunch, he and I were sitting around. And, and I don't remember. You know, we'd been talking about what music to do, and one of us said, "Well, why don't we just improvise?" And we improvised some duos, and it was like a great experience. And then somebody told me after that, that's the first time McCoy um, has uh, really done free improvisation like wow. that in wow. in many years. And so I was very happy about that. You, and, sorry, go ahead. No, you, you must have made him feel as though this was a possibility at that moment. He felt comfortable doing that. Yeah, well, I felt, com- I felt comfortable and, and he, he was definitely... You know, he was somebody who was into experimenting and, and very courageous about about improvising, you know, his whole life. And so that led to, I mean, I mean, I need to say that in that situation, I don't think McCoy Tyner was sitting, listening to the radio and said, oh, I got to work with that guitar. I think that that record and the other collaborations were 
his manager or record company people saying, Hey, let's get, you know, let's, let's get McCoy together with these people. It will be interesting. It will get some press buzz, whatever. But McCoy was cool with it. You know, like he, he rolled with it and that was very lucky for me. And I wound up doing a couple of tour dates after that. And like, I was practicing for weeks because I imagine, you know, yeah, I imagine. And I spoke with McCoy on the, you know, I tried, you know, he has such a huge repertoire. Um, he has such a huge repertoire that um, I, I wanted to know which tunes to focus on. So I spoke with him on the phone. I said, McCoy, do you have any uh, I- idea what you're going to do? And he says, well, you know, we'll do some tunes, you know, like uh, somewhere I had a live taste. We'll do some stuff on that. And I say, okay, do you know anything else? He says, well, don't worry about it. It ain't the army. Anyways. Next thing I know, I'm standing on stage in front of like 800 people in Seattle or someplace in some huge theater. And, and he's calling, you know, moments notice at like 150 on the metronome. And I'm going, oh, my God. But luckily, I had worked on that one. <laughs> How fantastic. How fantastic. Now, um, nearly in closing, Mark, um, a very broad question, and it might get a very dark answer, or maybe not only, maybe maybe there are shards of hope. H- how do you, in fact, imagine the future of music after this this endless moment? You mean after, after COVID-19? Yeah. Wow. It's yeah. a tough one. It's a tough one, I because... Know. I hesitated asking you, but... Here we well, Here you we know, are. there's a certain amount of recording going on. I've, uh, you know, for a while it was nothing. And then I've been able to do some recording um, in my own home. You know, like for a while there was nobody, you know, I have an engineer who can, who can get here safely and he sits in the room with his gear and I sit in another room and we've been able to, you know, manage to find a way to record ceramic dog my band made a record um shazad ismaili the bass player has a studio and you know we didn't do anything for for three four months but eventually you know especially because one of the band members is high risk because he has lung issues so we didn't want to you know we wanted to do things safe but eventually through talking we said well what if we arrived at different times and everything was set up and Shazad stayed in the control room and Chess stayed in, you know, we, we were able to be in separate rooms. So we did it. We recorded a record too, actually. And it was crazy. We, we'd enter separately, wash our hands, um, take off our shoes, go into our separate spaces, close the door. We didn't see each other, but we recorded, uh, we were able to record, I think we did uh, five hours a day. Um, or, or six hours or something for, for weeks. So it was kind of like a luxury. Um, and we heard each other over the headphones, you know? So, so recording has gone on. The big issue is going to be live. Um, uh, and because that's just, you know, that's shut down. And there was, I'm trying to remember the name. Um, I've been, people have been emailing me about this, uh, um, article. There was some wall street guy has gone has announced that he's going to create a, uh, they're going to create some entity that's going to buy 51% uh, um, of distressed, financially distressed clubs. And we've been talking, we've been talking about that for, for months. 
Um, I mean, that's going to be the end of the indie club scene. Wow. And it's going to happen because, well, well, because the clubs have been shut down for so long, they're going broke. Right. And I, I hope Congress bails them out, but it's, it's likely that it won't be enough to keep many going. And somebody's going to, somebody's going to buy them. And if it's not this Wall Street firm, it's going to be Live Nation or AEG. And, um, well, <laughs> they all suck. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I'll just put it. I'll okay. put it bluntly. So, so um, in 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 closing, really now, sadly, I'm going to ask you to re to react to a statement Arthur Miller made, where he says, "Don't be seduced into thinking that that which does not make a profit is without value." Right. Well, you know, I. I agree with that, but I also think that that which does not get paid in late capitalism dies. <laughs> so I like the I laugh. Think that, I like the laugh. You know, <laughs> uh, so I think I think there's a lot of music which doesn't make a profit, um, which has great value. There's music from pre that predates capitalism, and there is music that will post date it. Okay. But right now, under these conditions, uh, the, the musicians need to find, music needs to, find, to have an economy. So if these corporations buy the clubs, the best thing that I can hope, the best thing that I think, what musicians need to do is, there's no way we can stop these corporations from buying the indie clubs. What we can do is organize and make sure that musicians are fairly paid in them. That's that's what I hope to do. If they want to buy them, if they want to amass hundreds of millions of dollars um, to buy the clubs, they can amass a few million more to make sure that the people who play in them get paid. I don't want to hear about. I don't want to hear about corporation about corporate entities with hundreds of millions of dollars. And people paying, playing, uh, walking into the club and walking out with 15 without minimum wage. I don't want to hear about that. You know, so we need to we need to organize to make sure that musicians are fairly paid. We need to organize politically so that we can survive this thing. And that's what I'm going to be putting my energy into. Mark, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And I hope when you come out to Los Angeles from Brooklyn, you come and visit. I I would very love very much like to uh, to meet one of these days when when meeting reemerges as a as a possibility. Let let us hope. Let us hope. Let us hope let us soon. Hope. And all the best to you. Stay safe, and uh, perhaps someday we will meet in Trieste. Ah, that's sere buono. Sere buonissimo. Buonissimo. Okay. Ciao. Ciao. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. I bought a brand new airmobile, custom made. It was a flight deville with a powerful motor and some hideaway wings. Pushing on the button and you will get her seen. Now you can't catch me. Baby, you can't catch me. If you get too close, you know I'm gone like a cool breeze. To support this show and Dub Labs progressive programming, 
go to dublab.com slash support. Drizzling showers. Yeah, come on, flat top. He was moving up with me. Then come waving goodbye and a little old.